take on a science podcast about everything deep sea. I'm Dr. Thomas Lindley. With me is the professor, Alan Jameson, and special guest star, the winds of Wellington, which might be howling in the background because we're having a little bit of a storm right now. How you doing, mate? Welcome back ashore. Hi. Back from adventures. I know, it's been quite an adventure. It's a closing nautical miles. Take that off. Yeah, and it's only one third of the way into it. I had to come off and put somebody else on. They're going to do another 6,000 miles, and then later on we'll get up to 18,000 miles. Oof. Oh, jeez. Are you going to wait until the project is complete? Is there going to be any sort of media, any sort of updates? Oh, I don't know. We'll let you know on the podcast. So, yeah, it's big. It's massive. It's, it's, it's a marathon, this one. It's not a sprint. It's not a little science cruise. It's just this enormous, huge, big, epic undertaking. Trans-Pacific thing. We want to go everywhere. But we're going back and forward, up and down, across huge, vast expanses of the Pacific Abyssal Plains. And it's, some of it is not what you think, either. It's been, there's been quite a few surprises in there, which is good. Good, because it was kind of ground thing a little bit, but it's... It's not quite as steady as everyone thinks it is. It's actually quite variable on, on, on a lot of levels. Yeah. Well, it's, it's hard to say things are variable when you've only got like two samples. So uh, yeah, <laughs> we just sort of extrapolated over hundreds of thousands of nautical miles and it's about time somebody checked. Well, this is, this is why we're doing it. So we're stopping every 200 nautical miles and deploying everything and then just move another 200 miles to deploy everything and just keep going and keep going and keep going. And the first leg was like a bit of a whole hum. The second leg was like, oh, there's a little pattern emerging here and now the guys are out on the third leg. It's like, okay, so that's, that's starting to paint a picture and then they'll come back again. We'll wait a couple of months and then go back out. Only this time we'll have a submarine as well. We're going to do a bunch of dives as well. It's going to be great. We're analysing the data almost in real time, which is good. Not really had the capacity for that before. It's amazing. Make the decisions on the fly. Well, you need people. Yeah. Eyeballs. Eyeballs. Eyeballs and and index fingers for clicking. Yeah. It was great fun. It was a long time away. It was a good solid two months. Long enough to go strange. Well, I don't know, because I, I came back strange and then got immediately got COVID. <laughs> so, <laughs> That'll strange you. Yeah, I had COVID for last week, which is great. But back in the game, and I'm back to my good microphone too. So it must be a relief for the listeners to hear me on an actual microphone and not just me screaming into an earbud. You sound lovely. You sound lovely. We, you know, that's you in the field, though. That was that was really authentic. Oh, yeah. It's good. Good to hear from you out there. On this end, we had Squid Christmas. I got to attend my first Squid Christmas. What is Squid Christmas? Ah, oh, it's uh, it's Cat Bolstead and the AUT team. It's roughly once a year, but it's it's when when the need arises. So both ourselves here at the museum and Niwa, anything exciting and squiddy goes into a big squidsicle, frozen, and then the Squid Squad descend upon us, and we have like a flurry of hardcore squiddy taxonomy. And it's really good. They're a good team. They're good fun. We got to hang out for a week. So I learned lots of things about the the things that pretend to be fish, but they're not quite as good. So there's a scaled squid, which looks weird. What's that thing where people don't like certain textures, don't like things with holes in them? Right. Anyway, it sets that off in people. It's like a squid covered in these like really fishy looking scaly growths. I got to meet a teningia. So the I think we spoke, spoke about it on the last episode, the largest light organ in the animal kingdom. So it's this quite chonky looking squid, but then with these lemon shaped and sized light organs on the end of two of the arms and just, yeah, amazing. And it was weird. I saw it like reveal itself. It just looked like this block of ice and meat. And we thought it was, well, I thought at least it was going to be like really badly damaged sample. Then it was only going to be experts who could tell what it was. And then like this really beautiful squid emerged from this ice cube. How do you defrost it though? It shouldn't take ages if you've got a massive big block of ice full of squid. Doesn't that take like um, days to defrost? The elves of Niwa bring them out sort of in lots of boxes and then you get glimpses of 
diagnostic features as they're defrosting. So as they turn from blob into recognizable animal, you get to be like, oh, I can see this bit. And that means that it's this group and things like that. It's quite, it's quite a good reveal. It's quite a good way of like revealing things. I got to play with a giant squid tentacle. Good. That's new. And I got to learn about their distinctive smell. Uh, can I ask what you did with it? I photographed it. Right, okay. <laughs> Which was interesting itself. Yeah, it was just one disembodied tentacle, but it was still enough to like fill the frame of our photo suite. But yeah, the smell was weird, and it's not a big squid thing because apparently the colossal squid don't have that smell. There's like the team were good enough that they could ID a um, giant squid just by sniffing it. So I quite like oh, that. Nice. That's pretty good. That's some good uh, animal ID right there. Good nose. Yeah, yeah, that was good fun. So yeah, that was what was going on here. And so on the back of that, my song of the month is going to be in honor of Christmas in July, because I'm trying to adapt to the Southern Hemisphere thing. So I thought having a Christmas in winter might sort of ease the blow. So my song of the month is Millington, Snow Miser, Heat Miser from the old Playmation film. Bit of a punk cover of that. And there is actually a little town about an hour up the road from where we are right now called Greytown, which is doing a whole month of Christmas in July. So yeah, I've been singing Christmas carols. I've been drinking mulled wine. There's fake snow. Good, good cringy stuff that I bet you hate, Al. Isn't it supposed to be me that's gone mental? <laughs> I always loved Christmas. This was this was long standing. I've got a reason to be mental. I've come back in the most sanest person I know. <laughs> maybe we all just met, went mad without you. Yeah, maybe that's what true crazy is when you think you're the only oh. sane person there and everyone else has gone mental. I think that is. Oh, now I'm starting to doubt myself. Quick thank you to the patrons. We have some new ones. Jay Thompson, Sam Watson, and Lucy Goodwin. Thank you so much. And thank you to anyone who bought merch, subscribed, shared the show, uh, all the lovely ways you can help. And we've been having some nice chats over on the Discord. We've now got a, a book recommendation thread. Uh, with lots of nice things bouncing around there and a deep sea meme thread the second one really opened the floodgates so i have a, a deep sea meme for every occasion now really which includes the bibby and you you were harassed by the bibby uh out in the field weren't you well no i'm an, an internet sensation because <laughs> i was posting some videos of deep sea fish online and uh yeah got quite a good response uh, from quite a lot of them actually and uh, not a big fan of social media, as you know. But then quite a lot of people kept leaving comments just saying Bibby. And it's like, I don't get what that is. It looks, it's like a little cartoon of what looks like a snailfish, but they were just posting it against anything. And I'm still confused as to what Bibby is. I don't get it. I mean, it's kind of funny, but I don't get it at all. Well, I, I've fallen in love with it and it, it massively deflated me at the same time. Because like, we've been talking about this for maybe coming up to a decade the whole like a lot of what people associate with deep sea fish it's the dark sea fish it's about the sort of 1000 to 2000 meter mark and then the actual deepest fish is very very cute um the hadal snailfish are adorable and then somebody just summed it up in this little ms paint drawing of like a tuna and then regular fish in the surface and then nightmare zone with all of the the toothy but tiny open pelagic stuff and then right there at the bottom is just like it's really cute little snailfish drawing and it's just labeled bibby and it really got me it tickled me i'm gonna have to track down the origin of it but yeah you you were getting comments of just the bibby yeah, I was very confused. <laughs> and, and to be fair, I don't think you've clarified anything for me at all. I'm still confused. Well, that's that's a meme, you know. It just appears out of the blue. But yeah, we'll, we'll do some research into that. But I'm gonna I'm gonna insert that into multiple talks because it's it sums up what I've been trying to say so well. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I'm definitely gonna use that. Um, on the back of arty things, one of our patrons. Megan, aka Anything But Snow, aka Studio MBJ, has been painting some lovely deep sea images, including one based on your footage, Alan, of feeding supergiant amphipods. Yeah. And uh, is it true? Has she made a sale? Uh, yeah, I haven't, I haven't bought it yet, but I'm going to buy it. I'm just trying to figure out how to do that because it's actually quite difficult to buy things off 
an individual in my line of work. It's easier if it was a company. <laughs> but yeah, no, no, I'm going to get it. I'm going to hang it in the uh, Deep Sea Center. It's a beautiful painting of the super giants that was, uh, we filmed in the Murray Fractures on probably a month ago now. Very cool. Love it. You'll probably find links in the show notes to Megan's page and uh, her other art. Oh, we've we've had lots of weird news going on right now, really. There is lots of weird alien chat, and it also went round to those those fragments of the what was it it's from beyond our solar system the the thing that crashed in the pacific and you yes. you were approached briefly to go and look for it and i was and a friend of mine was the expedition leader who did find it oh it was it was through um it was ron mccallum and Niels. yeah but they had to use a technology we don't have access to because they had to use this magnetic sled thing and we just don't have that so and I, my you know my feeling was Given the size of the object and the and the predicted size of the fragments, it was like this is never going to work. But it turns out with a magnetic sled, they went back and forward, and apparently they they say they found it. I don't know enough on the subject to know whether that's crazy talk or not. They're tiny little pellets. They're tiny little spheres, and how sort of well, they're not perfect, but how sort of spheroid they are. But the the first thing that jumped to my mind is they they look kind of like shotgun pellets. And have you ever seen shot towers? Mm. It's how we used to make shotgun pellets back in the day. So basically, you'd you'd melt lead and then pour them basically through a grill down this tower, and it would fall, and the falling would create a sphere, basically quite a nice little sphere sort of easier than casting things at the time and then would land in water at the bottom and that would set it and that's how you'd make shot for ballast and um, shotgun cartridges and things like that basically anytime you wanted a little metal ball so i was wondering if this maybe while entering the atmosphere melted and then when it hit the water essentially did exactly the same thing and that's why they're these little round pellets rather than the thing that landed being made of little round pellets but it, was, it wasn't alien technology i thought it was just supposed to be some interstellar object not necessarily made yeah. by an alien it was just from a source outside the solar system did they actually say it's alien technology there is quotes like that but both me and you know how mm. you can say something totally reasonable to the media and then find yourself being quoted in some unusual ways so i, I, I won't even pass judgment on that i don't think there's anything been found it's certainly a very interesting sample i don't think there's anything that's been found that's leading it towards being technology if it wasn't interstellar alien spacecraft it wasn't very good because the time we got to Earth, it was reduced to small blobs the size of shot. <laughs> yeah, maybe things like that. There's there's lots of weird alien disclosure right now. I still yes. don't quite know what to make of it. I know, this is the wrong show, but I did hear the other day that the US government just admitted to the fact that aliens are totally a thing. And then world's media didn't really pick up on it. They're like, yeah, whatever. And it's like, oh, no, no, we've got alien bodies, <laughs> so we've got material from aliens, and we've got technology, and they've been looking at us and assessing our capabilities and all the rest of it. And nobody seemed to bother. I'm not sure it went that far, and I don't know if if people are sort of jumping on what they what they want to hear because it was it was non-human occupant, wasn't it? And Leica the dog was a non-human occupant. This could still be a country doing military trials with a dog or a pigeon or something inside, or <laughs> or they put something biological into the into the control even yeah this is the wrong podcast for this chat but yeah i've been i'm intrigued yeah we're going in the wrong direction but this is cool it is cool i am paying attention to it. okay let's let's get properly back down into the deep sea uh the, doing the rounds was an oarfish uh spotted which the what was it the daily the daily star yeah the daily star excellent uk newspaper described it as twice the size of preta crouch the uh 
notoriously tall footballer. So that's it. That's the new measure of scale. Yeah. That's how far we'll, we'll avoid the metric system. I think uh, most of them are saying Orfish, and I, I, I get it. Like my gut reaction, my knee joke reaction was Orfish, but it's actually a, a deal fish, I think. And that's quite closely related. It's a slightly distorted video, so it does make it sort of feel different. And uh, yeah, I, I thought Orfish, but it's it's deal. It's definitely a deal fish. And there was a little bit of criticism about they shouldn't have touched it. I do understand the feeling though. Like that was quite an amazing experience and you would sort of reach out and try and make contact but it probably wasn't a good idea to touch it but there's really interesting scars down the body which look like they're from cookie cutter sharks and they look like they've healed so that was really that was really cool as well and then on the back of cookie cutter sharks there was some pictures posted recently from some sports fishermen who caught a swordfish that was just absolutely nailed by cookie cutter sharks i've never i've never seen yeah, it yeah that's horrible oh I, like you feel bad just to look at it, it looks painful i mean they're nasty Nasty little things, but uh, obviously this animal was was immobilized in some way, and they they just went to town on it. For anyone who who, who doesn't know, they're quite a famous little deep sea beastie. It's a uh, quite a small shark. It tends to hang around in little gangs. It has the the bioluminescent belly, so it gives it counter illumination. So you can't really see it from below, but it has this dark collar around its neck. And so the thought is that it looks like the shadow of a much smaller fish. A predator does its sort of attacking strike. And then right as it's about to make contact, these little sharks double back on themselves and use even the momentum of the predator. They've got weird lips. Like it's weird for a shark to have lips, but they actually suction onto the side. They've got this big scoop-like lower jaw and they just twist their body and core out this perfectly round core of flesh. So you quite often see animals with with a few of these little nuggets taken out of them, but nothing like this swordfish. So it must have it must have been because it was immobilized on the line, but it looks really painful. Another weird thing going back the oarfish for a minute is, is the PR. I mean, apparently in Japanese culture, there was a thing about when an oarfish lands on the beach, it means there's a tsunami and the earthquake coming in. And they're now known as like, they've been referred to as the omens of disaster and the doomsday fish. It's <laughs> <laughs> just all sorts of stuff. But these poor oarfish are just getting blamed for seismic devastation, which is kind of an, an odd one. But yeah. And even being associated with after the event as well. So not being a warning, but being something that comes after. And that doesn't seem too unusual because quite often these seismic events are actually the epicenter is, is deep down. And was, weren't there groups off Hawaii who used to after, after seismic events sort of go out there and pick up all the, the deep sea fish that had floated dead to the surface? Well, there's a, there's a lot of weird stuff going on in that. I think there's a, wasn't there one once with a whole bunch of deep sea fish images went around the internet and it was all supposed to be a wound washed up after the big tsunami in Japan? And then it transpired months later that they're all from a Russian deep sea troll. And it had nothing to do with it. It was just. It just makes a good story. Yeah. But what, what I don't get about the oarfish thing and being the doomsday fish and the bringer of quakes and all the rest of it, it's like, isn't the oarfish already weird enough? Like, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's already a, a crazy animal. But, but somehow it's been nice to be wrapped up in something even more mental. I think that's it, though. You, you sort of work backwards. Like, you, you see the weirdness and then think it must be an omen of something. It must be a. I don't know why this is where my brain's going, but like, how we became obsessed with Mercury back in the day where it used to be called quicksilver yeah. it was like this stuff is so cool looking it must be good for stuff like and so it was in loads of medicine just because it looked it looked magical yeah <laughs> liquid silver yeah don't drink mercury kids don't don't drink the quicksilver
Dumbo octopuses have been seen to migrate in the opposite direction of the diel vertical migration. So while everything comes up at night to feed, they seem to be going the other way. And it's thought as a way of optimizing prey. I don't know if you can sort of bump into each other on the way past. Well, they'll be like, like when we go to the London Underground, you always seem to be going the opposite way from everyone else in London. That's true. We must feel a bit like that. Well, that's because they've probably got lives and jobs and we tend to be day drinking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, that'll be it, yeah. 12 hours out of sync with the rest of London. <laughs> yeah. There's been loads of dive streaming uh, from multiple of, of the big groups that do that. Uh, so just all over Twitter uh, and there's a dedicated Discord for it as well. Um, just amazing stuff as it happens. Uh, and sort of related to that is I have been playing Fathomverse. So we talked about Fathomnet when we interviewed Kakani. Anyway, we'll put a link but way back in that episode. And they are finding ways of getting the, the general public basically to help process their their huge amounts of data. So they've got lots of imaging data. It needs to be annotated. It needs to be said even quite broadly, you know, is it a starfish? Is it a fish? And so they're looking at getting the public to sort of source that. And they've kind of made it into a little game, basically. And so I've been playing that. I think I'm up to level 13 or something like that. Flying this little thing around and IDing deep sea critters. And you actually learn a fair bit of taxonomy through doing it. And they are still looking for beta testers. So there is a link in our show notes if you would like to download and have a play and learn some deep sea critters and help to ID them to train AI and to, to generally build up catalogs of what the deep sea looks like. It's quite a fun little thing to do. On the back of that, there's some news about discovery of species. So the paper that was published, and it, was, it was based on the World Register of Marine Species, which is known as worms. And they've worked out that there are currently around 242,000 known marine species in the ocean. And they're continuing to be discovered and named at a current average of 2,332 new species per year. And this is where it gets kind of interesting because they've looked at the average... Oh, I, I love this, the average new species. The average new species is a fenthic crustacean annelid or mollusk between 2 and 10 millimetres in size, living in the tropics between 0 and 60 metres. But what got me was the fact that they get described after an average shelf life of 13 and a half years. Yeah. Which means someone's caught it, preserved it, put it in a museum or a collection somewhere. On an average, it's 13 and a half years before someone describes it. So then they're saying at the current pace of discovery and characterization, it'll take several hundred years to describe the remaining one to two million unknown marine species. We're going to have to get quicker. Oh, well, I was going another way. I'd just give up. <laughs> too many. Yeah, I, I used to tell students like the the actual best place to find a, a new species is is in a museum collection because it will probably be labelled as such. The, the The pinch point is doing the work you, you yeah. can know it's new really quite quickly but actually doing the description that's the that's the tough bit yeah we better drawn through a collection and try into the sea because it's a lot less windy as well it is this might be a coffee machine did you see the news on the the gulf stream is this the guardian that put one out said that the gulf stream is going to cut off in like two years <laughs> yeah and they, they totally misread some report that was throwing all sorts of scenarios out and they picked like the worst possible one and went that well there we go yeah there we go on some reporting as well i think the, the met office sort of came back with a, a bit of a rebuttal i think it's big error bars but it is visibly weakening it is not as hearty as it used to be in uh in distributing heat and oxygen around that area so uh we, we it's definitely an upcoming episode we're just talking to the right people um uh, but i've mentioned before that i worry about the big ocean circulations and that's that's what keeps me up at night more than maybe the smaller things we worry about it sounds to me like what keeps you up at night is fathom fast not worrying about <laughs> climate change i know the beta only goes to level 15 and i do want to get there that feels like completing it you 
you've developed a fondness for all the jellies. They were they were seducing you on some of your recent work. They were. I wrote a whole paper on it, and we got quite a lot of bits wrong, <laughs> which was since corrected. But yeah, bunch of animals. I don't really understand. I must admit. So of all the learning curves, I think the gelatinous learning curve was the steepest. But good fun though. It's a tricky lot to study. They're so fragile and they don't preserve great and they don't come up great. So it's a whole underreported, undersampled element of the pelagic community. I don't know, we're just sort of data starved and every time we look there's loads of new stuff. What was it about the jellies that sort of seduced you? What I just felt after a while, after so many years, we had, well, in any given lander deployment or subdive, you don't see that many. But over time, you should realize that, wait a minute, we saw that four years ago over there and we saw one at East down here. And so this is a COVID thing. So while we're all sat in lockdown, I'm like, wow, let's go through all the old archives. Not through all the data, but a lot of the spreadsheets and whatnot, where we've logged it all. Because we'd usually make a note, wouldn't we? And we, we gave them all nicknames, didn't we? There was the evil eye, yeah. there was the apple core. The apple core of the little bait. Tina Force and things like that. So. But we were idiots back there. We, d we didn't know that. <laughs> we just gave them nicknames so we could find them again. Well, my favorite one is a narco producer. Yeah, <laughs> love that. But uh, yeah, it was just one of those papers that came about because we were working at depths that no one else is really working at for so long. And I'm thinking, well, we should report everything. But there was never enough from any one area to say, you know, we could do like 45 land deployments, go, oh, we saw one little red jelly. Yeah. And it's, it'll be insignificant, but when you put it all together, and then certainly when we started seeing all these larvations and uh, tracking Medusa down at, you know, nine, nine and a half thousand meters, it told a cool story. And so we put that out there. It was one of the groups as well that benefited most from the recent improvement in cameras. Yes. Because you'd, you'd see jellies, but they wouldn't resolve very well you know they're, they're sort of you can't even tell where they are relative to the camera is that huge or is that tiny and close up and then once we got sort of hd and now getting into 4k like suddenly you can get diagnostic characters and you can you can really see what's going on and id things rather than just one of the big changes for us is the way in which we sample so rather than time lapsing from above looking down we don't see a lot of stuff floating around is going to continuous recording horizontally because then you've got that black landscape behind yeah that picks them out and because some of these things are only fluttering past the camera for a matter of seconds if you're time lapsing it you'll just miss it you'll be very lucky to catch it and so that was leaving the cameras recording for a solid eight hours just facing out you we pick up so many more of that type of animal so that was a big big leap forward in the old jellies but no i really enjoyed it i wouldn't pass myself off as an expert at all i would i would fear standing up in front of a room of taxonomists talking to jellyfish so just so we just wrote that paper throw it over there and then run away yeah, i've got you some pictures <laughs> of those things you like and then leg it yeah yeah it was like, it's proper fraud on that one it was good we followed up recently with another one that had a, a shorter one that had a couple of other ones in there and i reckon the deepest jellyfish and stuff like that so i feel confident talking about some bits of it but there's like the larvations i would recommend oh, everyone wild. goes and looks at the larvations it's such a cool animal but it makes no sense yeah the animal itself there's not much to it and then they just construct these multi-layered filtering mechanisms it's ah it's good mm. stuff good stuff interesting work using lasers to sort of scan them yeah. reveal the structures inside them so if we don't feel qualified if we don't feel able to jump into the gelatinous world of pelagic jellies we'll find someone who can so we're going to have a chat with george matsumoto marine biologist and senior education and research specialist based in monterey bay aquarium research institute good old ambari in the usa and his research focuses on the open ocean and deep sea communities with particular focus on invertebrates and gelatinousy things their ecology behavior and evolution I'm joined by George Matsumoto. Thanks for coming on to have a chat, George. Thank you very much for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here. 
Uh, we came on to this topic because on the last episode, we were really enjoying some of the new footage that's coming out from the, the dive streams. And in particular, the recent observations from the UV Nautilus of the orange jellyfish at about 1400 meters. And I think they, they narrowed it down to the uh, Bathychorus genus. But this one was unusual being sort of a red red brown color did you manage to catch that in the news i did and in fact i was watching that live dive when it happened which is unusual because we've been blessed lately with a number of live dives that are happening simultaneously so it's it's been challenging to watch all of them we used to sort of fight over a little bit of deep sea footage but now we can flip channels we can <laughs> we can oh what are they doing what are they doing over here uh we're sport for choice now it is crazy to see the difference because, you know, really, literally five years ago, you would be hard pressed to find some live feeds. And now it seems like right now you could have live feeds coming from two or three different remotely operated vehicles. And that the beautiful, beautiful footage. And it's really, it's doing amazing work at demystifying the deep sea because it's well illuminated and it's beautiful and it's not secrets and it's not monsters. We're all just going on this amazing dive together and seeing some incredible things. And I think it's doing so much for, for Deep Sea's image, de demystifying that and removing the sort of the, the horror, <laughs> the aliens aspects, because it's just a beautiful walk. <laughs> Absolutely, that's right. Because the animals down there are not horrific and they're not scary and they're not monsters. I'm not sure if we're really demystifying things because with so many vehicles sending back so many images, we keep finding new things. <laughs> that is true. Like this orange jelly that you just mentioned. Can you tell us a, a little bit about this group of jellies? Because I, I am a fish person. You know, they've got a face. They've got a front and a back. <laughs> the whole gelatinous radial symmetry group, you know, I, I am lost. I am lost. This thing had like multiple stomach pouches. Is that a thing? Yes. So so this is a really interesting jelly. It's a hydrozoan jelly. And hydrozoa is one of the classes for in the cnidarians or the jellies. And Bathychorus was first described in 2010. So it's even the genus is not really an old genus. It's a deep sea species that was described originally from the Arctic Ocean, actually by a colleague of mine, Kevin Raskoff. And he described this Bathychorus as it comes from the Greek name, Bathy meaning deep, and chorus helmet. So it's the deep helmet, and it refers to the shape of the bell, which reminded him of Darth Vader. Yes. Oh, that's a great reference. And so this <laughs> this actually got a lot of press when it was described because, of course, he called it the Darth Vader jellyfish. We'll definitely track that down and we'll put some links. Yeah. The description, when you look at the original description, it's, a, it's an opaque white jelly with four tentacles. And in between each tentacle are three what we call stomach pouches. And so this is an interesting animal because the original species has 12 stomach pouches. And this orange one that we just saw recently is, one, it's orange. Two, it only has three tentacles instead of four. And of course, because it only has three tentacles, now it only has nine stomach pouches instead of 12. And so the question, of course, is, is this a, just a completely new species in that genus or did something strange happen so that it has three tentacles instead of four? And we have to find more specimens. Oh, it could just be an unusual individual. Or it could just be a very unusual individual. Absolutely. The animal that we did see was not a full adult, although it was not a juvenile either. So they couldn't really see well-developed gonads, which sometimes you see. But even on some adult 
jellies, sometimes you don't see the gonads anyway if they're not reproductive. So learning about deep sea animals is difficult. And learning about deep sea jellies is even more difficult because you cannot collect them usually with nets. Or what you get, you're not particularly happy with. I've, I've seen it just as wallpaper paste being poured out of a cod end. That's right. And then, you know, the, the jelly taxonomists are pointed to it. It's just, have fun. There you go. One of the advantages <laughs> of studying fish yeah. is that you could actually get specimens with nets. They're not in the best shape sometimes, but you get specimens. And they come back so badly damaged. What hope does a, a transparent gelatinous animal have? Essentially, it's just been pushed to a sieve. That's right. So they don't look very good when they get up to the surface in a net. But that's kind of the exciting part for me is that because you can't usually cannot collect them with a net, the deep sea is full of interesting animals that we really haven't seen the light of day yet because you can't collect them in a net. So every dive into the deep is kind of a really neat safari into the unknown in terms of gelatinous animals. Does it cause issues when it comes to, to species descriptions? There's a debate that's been raging forever and it's only getting more heated now that our visuals are getting so much better in providing a holotype. Well, that's a really good question. So I think that when you describe a specimen, you not only have to have the morphology, right, what it looks like, but these days you also need some DNA. You need to be able to sequence part of the genome, if not the whole genome, so you could put it into its proper taxonomic place molecularly. And then I think it's also important to have a holotype and some paratypes, some specimens, so that scientists of the future will have something to look at and compare it to. And that is that is a current issue right now, because when we describe new species, sometimes there's holotypes or paratypes in the museums, and more often there are not. They're, they're just illustrations and sketches and descriptions, and you're sort of left wondering, you know, has this been described before, or is this something new? Yeah. And we've got no way of knowing, like just in the last five years, the amount that say genetics has come on. We've got no way of knowing what will be possible with the material we're archiving now in museum collections and, and with holotypes. I recently started working in a museum and every time I put, say, a tissue sample away, I'm thinking I might be long dead. It might be hundreds of years. Somebody might do something really cool with this. And I'm almost, I feel like I'm passing it to them through time. I feel like I'm sort of like, here you go. I got you. There you go. <laughs> I think that's a great way to look at it. And that's, and that's absolutely right. So we may not be able to do any of our own work with these specimens, but somebody down the line will. I, I really do believe that. So I think it's important to have a holotype and a, some paratypes. And, and I think having both is important. For instance, I've gone to the Smithsonian to look at holotypes, and I found out that somebody was there before me and cut the animals up to look at their gut contents. And now the holotype isn't really a holotype anymore because it doesn't look the same. Yeah, it's it's so tricky to sort of, because quite often there's destructive techniques and they, they sort of pull these needs in different directions. Right. So there's a reason to have multiple samples in a museum so that people could look at them and hopefully leave at least one of them intact so that somebody else can look at it in the future. But having the DNA and having a molecular sequence, I think, is, is really important. I think it is good if we do the sequences ourselves because storing a tissue specimen in a freezer can be difficult because that means that you have to hope that, one, the power never goes out wherever you've got it stored, mm -hmm. and two, the specimen doesn't get lost somehow. And for some of these jellies, you may be talking about a tentacle. 
and that's easy to lose. Yeah, the vial gets damaged, or the uh, the label rubs off, right? Or or just funding becomes inconsistent. Like this, you can only lose it once, if that makes yeah. sense. It's got to it's got to persist for hundreds of years. Whereas if it's data, they can back it up. Yeah, I think a great study would be to go back to some of the original jellies were described, the type location, and look for some specimens because we don't have specimens or DNA from these original descriptions. But if we could find some jellies in the same areas, we could sort of tell ourselves that this is probably the animal that was described in that type specimen. And then we could say, here's the paratype, or here's the holotype, or you know, here's the DNA from this species that was described 100 years ago. We're so overwhelmed with so much new material. Like We find so much new stuff on every single expedition that uh, there's just a lot to do. So it's, it's tricky to go back and do the due diligence on those. And we need more students who are trained in this and are willing to do this type of work. I think, I think you've hit upon a great issue with our field. Because even at Ambari, for instance, we may have described over 200 species in the short time we've been around, because we've only been around for 35 years. But we probably have another 100 species that we know are undescribed, but we haven't had time to work on them yet. Yeah. And a great example of that is that there's actually an undescribed species on display as part of the Into the Deep exhibition at the Monterey Bay Aquarium. Oh, we covered that one. That was amazing. And that's the graphic on the tank, right? Here's an undescribed species. It's a bit of a soundbite that I, I, I've told students a few times. It's actually the best place to find a new species is in a museum collection. Yes. Because there's such a bottleneck. It takes it takes maybe one, one expedition to, to capture something, but it could take two years to get it properly described. Oh, two years, I think, is... <laughs> being really fast. <laughs> I'm glad you said that. I'm glad you said that because I am slow. I'm, I like to think I'm thorough, but I'm not quick. <laughs> thorough. Thorough is a good word. And it's it's gotten harder. You know, when I first started in this field, I, I did have some early species descriptions when I first started. And there was just morphological because it was before DNA because I'm old. And the morphological descriptions took maybe a year or two years. But now you have to do the sequences. And it's not enough just to sequence the species you're describing. You really should be sequencing all the other related species to make sure it's not one of those. Yeah. And that's what takes the time because now you have to go get specimens. Yeah, that's true. But as, we, as we're building up these databases, because this is a lovely collaborative thing, there's things like GenBank, and uh, we do a bit of work and then we sort of throw it out to everyone and, and hey, this might be useful for you and this might give context to what, to what you're looking at. That's right. I think that's a great part of the scientific field is that we don't sit there. Most people don't sit and hoard the data thinking, you know, one day somewhere down the line, I'm going to use this sequence. Scientists are really good about sharing that type of data because everybody realizes that you could be holding up some work somewhere if you're not sharing that sequence. Yeah, and we've all got more than we, we know what to do with. So yeah, hoarding always backfires because there's always more coming in. I, That's I'm right. Trying to be as collaborative as I can and generous as I can because to be honest, that then flows both ways. You, yeah. you become known in the field as like, oh no, they're, they're a team player. They're good. They helped me out. So now I'm going to pass the ball back. And there's not enough people working in the deep sea yet to the point where we're going to start running out of material. Yeah, there's not enough of us to, to be stingy. Yeah, so to come back to to that new jelly, just as a jumping off point, really, is there a reason for these multiple stomach pouches? Or is it about the, the radial symmetry? Is the body just sort of these repeating units? 
and you can make a circle from as many as you want, really. I think it's that latter statement. Yeah. I think it's just an issue of symmetry. It's hard to know why they have multiple stomach pouches. You know, theoretically, it could give them an advantage, for instance, if something came and, and took a little nibble out of them. Oh, yeah. If they lost one or two stomach pouches, they're still okay because they got a few others. If you only have one stomach and you lose your stomach, that could be problematic. But there's also a lot of plasticity, a lot of variability in some of these jellies that we still don't really understand and we're still learning about. And it's interesting to me because some things are considered diagnostic features. It's, you know, if it has, uh, and a good example would be um, the larger jellies, which have things we call oral arms, the big arms in the middle of the jelly that work as not only prey catching devices, but are also essentially stomachs, right? They're mouth arms, we call them, because they not only catch food, they also digest food. And for a lot of animals, a lot of these jellies, the number of arms is considered diagnostic. Do they have four arms or five arms? But there's a fairly significant jelly that I was a part of a team that described it, that his nickname, Big Red, Tiburonia granrojo, <laughs> right? A really big red jelly. No tentacles, mouth arms, and it could have anywhere from three to seven mouth arms. Are they the really huge ones? It looks, it looks like a duvet. They're the really big ones, yeah. The ones that get up to a meter in diameter and just look really solid. We talked about that one and I said it looked really comfy. Yeah, <laughs> it, looked, exactly. it looked like you could sort of wrap yourself up in those arms. <laughs> That's one think? you could probably pick up in a net, <laughs> right? And people have probably picked it up in a net and just said, what is all this red stuff? But it, it's interesting to me that it has a varying number of oral arms. And so every time I see one, I'm sitting there counting arms just because I'm curious. And it's interesting to me, and I don't know why they have a different number of arms. I don't know what the advantage is or you know, what, what it is about their genome that says, I'm going to have three arms and I'm going to have six arms. Because when you have seven or five, or, I mean, it's, it's, it's not necessarily symmetrical anymore. Whereas four, you say, okay, that's a nice number. You got four arms, you got four gonads. You could cut the animal into four quarters. That makes sense. Nice repeating units. Yeah, nice repeating units. But sometimes you have three or four or five or six or seven, and now it's not multiples anymore. And you're desperately trying to use these characters to, to sort them out. <laughs> they keep throwing up aberrant forms. That's right. Luckily, it's so far, it's the only, you know, meter wide huge red jelly yeah. that's really thick that lives in the ocean that we've found <laughs> but yeah but we would be unusual for that to that to develop in a vacuum so there probably will be others and it's only it's only now where we can we can rely on its huge redness there's every chance there'll be another and another after that that's right i mean who knows maybe the three tentacles is one species four tentacles is another five is another i don't think that's true but we don't really know because they're too big to collect. So we've never collected an adult. <laughs> the biggest one we've collected is about the size of a softball. Oh, really? It gets yeah. so big, that's a problem in itself. Yeah, so that's our holotype. We did we did finally get a holotype, and that's that's the one that's in the museum up at the California Academy of Sciences. Well, can I ask a bit about preservation? Because I've certainly seen samples of, of jellies be put into preservative and then just immediately disappear. What are they preserved in? Yes, and tinophores or the comb jellies are prime examples of that. They do not preserve well, except for the benthic ones. The benthic ones preserve very well, but the ones that live in the water column just dissolve. Uh, the best luck I've had with preserving them is in cooled 
glutaraldehyde. Right. Almost matching that viscosity because it's kind of, it's slightly viscous, isn't it? Trying to match, yeah, trying to get that same sort of viscosity and, and temperature. And the problem with that, of course, is, is you really need to keep it cold. So now, now you have an archival problem if you give it to a museum. And the museum doesn't really want glutaraldehyde on their shelves anyway. So eventually they want it placed into ethanol. And when you do the transfer, it doesn't really work well. Even as gently as you can with all the stepping. Even as gently as you can. So, so tenophores are one of those things where finding a holotype and paratypes is very difficult. And then you start thinking, well, I should provide as many photographs as I can, provide videos, because that's what's going to survive. Yeah. And then and then, you know, you've uh, you've talked to Dougal Lindsay before, I think. And of course, Dougal a few years ago described a new species of tenophore based solely on video. So never had a sample. There's a few knocking around. There's a few things that we know uh, are absolutely new and we could even pick out the characters. But yeah, that's quite a it's quite a controversial thing to do. But we yes, <laughs> we need these names. We need to be able to talk about these animals and to have that mean something to other scientists so we're not all just spur a spur b but they don't line up uh, and there's been a few big movements for like a an intermediate phase of visual taxonomy visual labeling and i think that's a great analysis of the situation is that we're we're really good at collecting video now we're not as good about collecting specimens and so if we need to start talking about what lives in the ocean we do need to start thinking about different ways of describing some of the organisms that we're seeing which actually leads on quite nicely to something else we were we were chatting about. A few months back, we were all stumped by the uh, bluey, purpley, spiky blob that was uh, filmed in, I think it was in the Atlantic Ocean. Yeah, I forget exactly where it was filmed, but it, it was, they saw it uh, earlier this year in June. It was first spotted, I think... I forgot how many years ago it was, 2016 maybe? Oh, it's back. We've had a, we've had a repeat occurrence. Yeah, it was back a bit. Uh, we didn't dream it. No, you didn't <laughs> dream it, right? It was just a big, <laughs> like, purple disco ball, the purple orb, they called it. Very unusual. And again, it was the Nautilus that found that purple orb, which is kind of interesting. They're, they're going to new places and they're finding interesting things. And that was found, uh, that purple orb was found off California in 2016 just off the Channel Islands, off of Santa Barbara. And fortunately, that was an animal that the Nautilus was able to collect. And when they collected it, they found a foot, a muscular foot, and rhinophores, and were able to identify it as a nudibranch, a sea slug. I would not have guessed nudibranch. Which is just <laughs> amazing, right? I mean, they have some amazing forms. Yeah. But no way... That looked sessile. But then there was there was other shots, like a, there was a big globular one where it looked like a ball. And I sort of had a load of opinions about that. And then there was another picture where it flattened out and yes. all of my theories had gone. Oh, it gave us a good run. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> right. And we see things like that, you know, here at Ambari. We've, I remember the first time, and actually, interesting enough, that also has turned out to be a snail. We found an animal that is now called the mystery mollusk swimming in the water column. Oh. Beautiful animal. It's it's featured now on some of the NOAA literature. But when we first saw it, I remember sitting in the control room and for about 45 minutes, we were all arguing, trying to figure out what phylum it was in. <laughs> You're right at the base of the tree. <laughs> yeah. Is it a tunicate? Is it a jelly? Is it a sea cucumber? Because we couldn't tell. 
It was swimming like a jelly, but it looked like it had organs. So maybe, you know, and had extensions like a sea cucumber. And, and so we just kept going on and on and on. And even upon collection, we couldn't really tell. We could rule out cnidarian. We could rule out jelly because it clearly had organs. But after that, we were sort of stuck. And it did take sequencing to identify it as a snail. And, and so that was over 20 years ago. And just to show you how difficult it is, that has not been published yet. Wow. And we're hoping it's going to come out in the next year. I will certainly follow up if that yeah. uh, if that does come out. But it's it's such a new frontier still. There's still so many exciting things going on that we can have the footage, we can have the specimen and still not be sure. And then, like you say, sometimes the work takes so long because it is so fundamentally different that it's going to wobble the whole tree. Yes. You know, it's not enough to just give a species description. You now have to make room for it in the trees that already exist. And that's often the the, the hardest bit of work because you are now you're now nudging a lot of other people's work. <laughs> There's a lot of sort of gatekeepers yeah. uh, to, to maintain that tree. And that's part of the problem. We've, we've run into a little issue with some of the reviewers and <laughs> who are not quite <laughs> as convinced as we are where it belongs. And, and there are almost two separate problems. Do you, do, you, do you get a species out there so that we, we have this unit and we can talk about it and look for them and then almost leave the where it sits in the tree for for a much big, bigger debate? Because they, they feel like two, two quite separate but very linked parts of the process, but it's, it's difficult. Oh, you're right. And, you know, even lately, the tree of life has been shaken a little bit with the comb jellies or the tenophores sort of making a move down the tree. Yes, because we're, we're sort of looking for our, our earliest animal ancestor, and it's been a, a, a fight between them and the sponges for a while. That's right. And so the latest paper seems to put the tenophores down low and the sponge is a little further up. And that, of course, has raises a lot of controversy as well. Yes. I think it's quite healthy in the scientific community. We, we regularly find out that everything that we believe is wrong. So we're, we're continually open-minded. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, but we, we stay open-minded as we get older, which I think a lot of people galvanize. <laughs> I mean, that to me is the essence of science. And for me, part of the fun part about science is there are no absolutes and you do have to be remain open to what other people are talking about. Yeah, I think we, we've just become more right. I think right is a, is a perfect state, which we'll never actually reach. But I think we just, we head in a direction of becoming more and more right. I think the absolutes might exist, but us as flawed humans might not have complete <laughs> access to that. Uh, but there's a, there's a guiding star we're heading towards. I'm not sure if we're ever, I don't, I don't know if we'll ever find those absolutes. <laughs> yes, I think they're there under the hood. I, I like that people are getting better and better. <laughs> I think so. But it's, it's a process. It's a, it's a march. It's a direction, which is often something that's thrown back at us. It's like, oh, well, you used to think this and now you think this. And it's like, isn't that a good thing? Wouldn't you worry more if we just dug our heels in and said, no, I'm not changing our mind? <laughs> that's right. Absolutely. Oh, we're getting, we're getting really broad on this stuff. But I know this is a sort of area that touches on you because you've got a, a sort of wider element to your your job as well. You've got an interesting role at Ambari. You're, you're not just doing research, but you're you're heavily involved in education. Could you explain a bit about that? You know, what, what what's your role like at Ambari and, and what sort of energizes you to, to try and spread your knowledge, basically? Sure. I think I have the ideal job. And I'd be happy to argue about it with anybody else who wants to argue. I think I'm very fortunate because I do get to do research, but I also get to engage in education and outreach. And so some of these include programs like the Ambari Summer Internship Program, which is open to undergraduate and graduate students from around the world uh, to come and spend 10 weeks at Ambari. And that's really nice 
not only for me, but also for all of our staff, because Ambari is not an academic institution. We do not have students normally. And so for 10 weeks, once a year, we get to bring students to Ambari and remind all of us how exciting our work is. Because sometimes you lose track of that a little bit. And having students come and get so enamored and so engaged with what we're doing reminds us to be excited about what we're doing. And we're also fortunate because we have a partner in our outreach efforts, and that's the Monterey Bay Aquarium. And you've already had a podcast with the aquarium. And so you know that right now they're running the Into the Deep exhibition, an incredible display of animals from the deep sea live in front of your eyes that the public could look at. And in the case of the giant isopod, touch, because that's the touch tank animal. Really? You can stroke a giant isopod? You get to touch a touch bathonomius. Oh, that is cool. Much better than them ending up in ramen, which was <laughs> a story from last episode. I saw that photo as well. I can't believe they even tried that, but I guess I shouldn't be surprised. <laughs> Uh, one of the things we like to do on the show is to, because it was born out of us basically getting frustrated about how the deep sea was presented um, and not feeling like we had a voice. Is there any real clangers? Is there any real sort of incorrect facts that just propagate? And you'd really like to go on the record and just say like, that is not true. This is the case. Boy, that's that's a good question. Um, I guess the example that pops to mind first is that for the animals that I like to study, the tenophores or the comb jellies, most of the illustrations in textbooks have them upside down with the mouth on the I bottom and the tentacles up in the air. <laughs> and I'm not quite sure where that started, but of course, you know, textbooks, every revision, they tend to repeat it over and over again. So that would be fun to fix one of these days. I think that would be great. But I think I think the biggest misconception is the one that you alluded to earlier in our conversation. And that's the idea that the deep sea is full of dark, scary monsters, because I don't think it is. I think there are some beautiful, amazing animals down there. And even the ones that when people see photos of them, think that they're really scary. They're not really scary because they're not really that big. Things like the fang tooth or the viper fish, right, with their big teeth. They need big teeth because food's hard to find. And when you find food, you want to make sure you hold on to it. Absolutely. Oh, that's that's very close to our hearts. Oh, that was brilliant. Thanks so much for having a chat with us, George. Was there any final thoughts you wanted to add or, or is that all good from your end? Well, I think the only final thought I'd like to say is that if there's any students out there interested in studying the ocean, to do it. We need more people interested in the ocean. It's the largest habitat on Earth, provides, what, 98% of available living space, covers 70% of the Earth's surface, and we still don't know very much about it, and we don't understand it very well. So it would be great to get more people helping us learn about the ocean. And there's a lot of people like you and I who would be more than happy to work with these students, because we know we need more people. Absolutely. Knowledge exchange. Yeah. Well, that's that's brilliant. Can you, anything you'd like to plug, any good places for, for people to find out more about your work or about this the internship? Well, I would love, I guess, that. thank you for giving me the opportunity. I'd love to have people follow Embari on social media at Embari underscore news. That's where we'll post things about our internship program or anything else that we do. 
and you know we have an, for people in California we have an open house uh, next Saturday from 12 to 5 we welcome the public we're still doing a seminar series right now that's hybrid so you, people could follow and attend some of our seminars too Wednesdays at 11 o'clock Pacific time so you could look on our website and see what our seminars are like if anybody wants to become part of our seminar series and other than that like I said just follow us on social media because that's where we try to post everything we do that's amazing thanks george don't worry about rushing to write all those down uh if you scroll down into the show notes we'll try and gather that all into one place for you it's you. well worth a follow i'm sure most of our listeners already do thank you so much for your time george it was a really enjoyable chat oh my pleasure thank you george informed us of what the purple blob was mystery blob what was it it's a sea slug doing poses doing yoga it's a nudibranch doing yoga Huh. There's been a few those recently of something which is considered to be a big, massive mystery, and it's just like not like the four holes in the seafloor being, you know, mystery solved. It's a burrowing anthropologist. <laughs> it's not cats. You see holes in the seafloor everywhere you go, and the chances are it's a burrowing animal. And there's a good chance it's a lot of crustacean, and there's an even better chance it's a bloody amphipod. I don't know if these things are just someone's put it out there and it's kind of life of its own and it seems but yeah that's just it like there's a lot of wording of like oh this is what could these things be oh my goodness you know like it's just a burrowing animal that's just this the sentiment's full of them and the likes of that i mean i don't know where it is because i don't work on these things but it's it's a good enough photograph that it, it's not going to be a true mystery surely and yeah yeah maybe branks it by that yeah yeah we have very little control over what snowballs and you, you learn a little bit of it and some people are really good at like doing the social media thing and to be honest once you have a critical mass as a kind of person you can kind of dictate what goes viral and what becomes a thing but yeah we, we've certainly put out some stuff that we're just like oh this is really cool this is this is gonna get legs and sort of snowball and be really interesting and then it sort of dies a death and then something relatively mundane uh seems to just grab people you know, it was released at the right time or, or got yeah. that re sort of activation energy of enough accounts bouncing it early on that suddenly it becomes this whole thing. And then that's the worrying thing where you become a, a reactive rather than a proactive sort of media. You know, things like, was it an alien spacecraft that crashed into the Pacific? You know, that you sort of, you've got the story you want and then sort of distort what's going on into it. It's annoying those stories to say, it was an alien spacecraft. And as soon as you read the story, it's like, no, it yes. wasn't. It's like, oh, thanks for that. Yeah. And those are getting worse and worse. Yeah. The, the, the sort of clickbaitiness of, yeah. The, and it, they're obviously like copy pasted and just churned out to sort of appease the, the search algorithms. Because the amount of ones that is like, you know, next series of this hit show release date, and then the first sentence is like, we don't currently know when the next series will be released. And it's like, you've just, yeah. you've just got an article talking about the show and you've got, you've got a, like a bait, clickbait title. It's not right, Tom. It's not right. When you, bring, you bring them down from the inside. Go and get a job in the press. Oh God. No, wouldn't be good at that. Okay. So that concludes this episode of the Deep Sea Podcast. We now have a supporters page. If there's any way you'd like to sort of help boost the show, loads from the giving us lovely money through either joining the Patreon or with merch. And actually a little comment on merch. We are trying to change who is our merch supplier because it is quite expensive and the cut on their side is getting bigger and bigger. So you might see a, an angle change on the merch coming soon, which should be cheaper and better for all of evolved while still being lovely and there's a new design lurking in the wings there's a new design on the way but even leaving a review tell your friends about it 
a lot of poor students are subjected to this as well. It's given us wider reading. <laughs> so yeah, anyway, you can uh, spread the show around. We really appreciate it. And so until next time, we'll deep see you next time. And I abyss you already. If you would like to advertise with the Deep Sea Podcast, feel free to get in touch. Our audience is primarily young people with an interest in science, often undergraduates or people considering a degree in marine science, but it also includes established scientists. Feel free to get in touch if you're interested in reaching these groups. Have we, have we got a funny bit? Have we got a funny, funny ha-ha for the end? Oh, have we, have we been funny? Have we said anything funny? We've got a funny ha-ha to keep the, keep the crowds excited. It's got, to, it's got to be organic, though. You can't just... Well, when I listen to the Dixie podcast, I scrub straight to the last 30 seconds, because that's the best bit. <laughs> that's the hidden gold. The rest of it's just garbage. It's the last 30 seconds, which is a make-or-break-an episode for me. It's like seeing the end of the universe and haven't been able to look back. Right. That's what it feels like. It's the restaurant and the end of the universe. Yeah, the last 30 seconds.